Well, good morning, everybody. This is the uh, second of a five-week series of talks about the Reformation as we prepare for uh, Reformation 500, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of his 95 theses uh, on October 31st, 1517. And last week we heard about Martin Luther's conversion. Uh, Martin Luther, having been raised in a religiously conservative Roman Catholic household, Martin became a monk. However, as we heard last week, he never encountered the Christian gospel until, as a monk, he was given the task of teaching the book of Romans. And it was through his studies of the New Testament that he realized that the Christian gospel was actually quite different to the message that he'd been raised with. Now, according to medieval Roman Catholicism, how did a person get saved? How could you be sure that you were going to heaven? Well, actually, the answer was you could never be sure. Um, You could never be sure. But in general, the answer was to do as many good works as possible, especially with reference to the church. You see, they believed, yeah, sure, everybody's saved by grace, but you've got to get enough grace. And grace didn't mean God's kindness. Grace was a commodity that you stored up, and you needed to get enough grace to get saved. And so, for that reason, you got grace by participating in the sacraments, going on pilgrimages, getting indulgences, um, working in intercession with the saints. Um, In other words, actually, when push comes to shove, when you were saved, you were saved actually by your own good works. But as, as Martin Luther studied the book of Romans, he realized that actually Jesus has already paid the price for us. All we have to do is believe. All we have to do is put our trust in Jesus and he will save us. Martin Luther later wrote, If you have true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overwhelming love. Well, Martin uh, began to see more and more clearly how the Christian gospel that he discovered in the Bible was quite different to. In fact, it was the opposite of the religious ideas that he'd been raised with. And so now he was on a collision course with the religious authorities. When would this collision, this inevitable collision, take place? Well, it happened two years later in 1517. That's when the key issue presented itself, and the key issue was the collection of indulgences for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, you might be asking, what exactly is an indulgence? And that's a very good question. You might like to know that the Roman Catholic Church still to this day stands by the idea of indulgences. And indeed, in 2015, Pope Francis announced jubilee indulgences. And this is the definition of indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church church teaches today it says an indulgence is quote a remission before god of the temporal punishment 
due to sins, whose guilt has already been forgiven, um, but that punishment which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, the church as the minister of redemption, it dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Goodness, what does that mean? Well, for a start, temporal punishment refers primarily to purgatory. Purgatory is a Roman Catholic idea with uh, no support from the Bible. Uh, Purgatory is a Roman Catholic idea. It's this kind of halfway house between life here on earth and heaven. It is a place of suffering and torment on the way to heaven for the further purification of the soul. Now, um, what this means is that, you know, if you've sinned, you've still got punishment coming to purify your soul because it's very unlikely that your good works have outweighed your bad works. So, so, you know, most Christians find themselves in purgatory actually for thousands of years. And in most people's thinking, only the saints had more good works than bad. Only they kind of really escaped purgatory. What an indulgence does, here's the good news, an indulgence gets you out of purgatory earlier. It doesn't get damned people out of hell. It doesn't mean if you pay money, you'll be forgiven your sins. It does mean confess your sins and you'll be forgiven, but you still have some refining punishment coming. A partial indulgence will partially take away your punishment. A plenary indulgence removes it all. Certain conditions, however, need to be met. Uh, When Pope Francis in 2017 announced Jubilee indulgences, in order to get an indulgence, you had to go on a pilgrimage to your local holy door. I won't explain that one. It would take too long. (laughs) Um, You also had to go to confession, then go to a church service and receive Holy Communion, and you had to commit to praying for the Pope. What did you get in return? Well, you got in return a plenary indulgence. Your bad bank was reset to zero. No time in purgatory. A clean slate, a fresh start. Now, part of the conditions is that traditionally um, three C's have been needed. Contrition, you had to be sorry that you sinned. Confession, you had to go to confession and confess to a priest all your sins. And contribution, you had to pay money. In Martin Luther's day, the contribution part, routinely you, you paid your money to see holy relics and then you got an indulgence. A holy relic was some holy thing from the past. And Martin Luther, he lived under the government of a guy named Prince Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony. And Prince Frederick, a man of simple but devout faith, he had devoted his fortune and his life to building up the most impressive collection of holy relics in all of northern Europe, making Wittenberg, the the German center of holy relics, a place of pious pilgrimage to rival Rome. Highlights of the collection included a genuine thorn from Christ's crown of thorns, certified by Rome to have actually pierced our Savior's brow. It included a piece of, swaddling, of Christ's swaddling cloth, 13 pieces of his crib, one piece of straw, 
a gold coin brought by the wise men, and a tooth of of St. Jerome. I'm sure that was worth paying to see. The total collection, numbering some 5,005 pieces, reduced your, if you saw the entire collection, that reduced your stay in purgatory by 1,443 years, making Wittenberg the holiday destination of choice for all families in Northern Europe. And of course, it generated a huge income stream. And that huge income stream paid for a lot of things, including it paid for the chair of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, the chair that Martin Luther himself occupied. In other words, this stuff paid for Martin's job. He's going to be a brave man if he speaks against indulgences. Lastly, this practice of issuing indulgences in both Martin's day and still today for for Roman Catholics, it rests upon the idea that the church has the authority to dispense grace. Again, they don't think of grace as the manifest kindness of God. They think about grace as a commodity. Jesus and the saints have done so many good works and they've generated so much grace that it can be dispensed out like a currency. And the Roman Catholic understanding of grace, that it is like this hard currency in heavenly places, makes it a little bit like US dollars in Zimbabwe. It's hard currency in spiritual places. Now, from the perspective of Bible-believing Christians, there's just so much wrong with these ideas, we don't even know where to start. But these ideas still exist today. And in Martin Luther's day, this was bread and butter normal. But the crunch came for Martin Luther in 1517. Far away in Rome... Pope Leo X was in trouble. He had to find hard cash and vast sums of it in order to complete the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, a vast cathedral of towering dimensions that would house the bones of both St. Peter and St. Paul. Leo sent out a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel, and he was to collect, that is to say, he was to sell plenary indulgences in order to fund the building program. It was a plenary indulgence. In other words, it reset your bad bank to zero. And you know what? You could pay it on behalf of somebody who was already dead. So you could uh, chuck in some money and get grandma out of purgatory. Isn't that great? And because you don't have to, because you can't make decisions on behalf of grandma, grandma doesn't need to be contrite. And she doesn't need to go to confession. Oh, and oh, oh, by the way, neither do you. Just give us your money and you get the indulgence. It's simple. <clears throat> so forget the first two C's. Just pay the contribution. At the time, the sales pitch attributed to Tetzel was, and Phil's going to say this for us, Yeah, yeah. So bolt der Fennig in Kristen Klingt, dear, what he said, yeah. 
Fortunately, the good news is it rhymes in English just as well as it rhymes in German. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. And uh, last week I referred in my sermon to uh, a film simply called Luther and it stars Joseph Fiennes. And I think this film is well well worth seeing if for no other reason, it's worth seeing for those scenes where you see John Tetzel preaching. Um, because the value of those scenes is that you, you realize how incredibly attractive these ideas were. Um, and how comforting these ideas were. By giving money to the church, something that, after all, we all kind of figure that must be good, giving money to the church, that's a good idea. By giving money to the church, you could free grandpa from pain and suffering in purgatory and you could also be sure of your own future that you'd get out of purgatory straight away Um, and if you think about it it's easy to see why everyone was buying into this idea those in authority that the kings the queens the princes the pope the cardinals the priests the monks they all bought into this idea so for just a gold florin Uh, More if you were rich, less if you were poor. For just a gold florin, you'd be a fool not to buy in. As a chance investment, you know, it looks better than lotto. Well, the one person who wasn't buying in was Martin Luther. He was not buying in. To cut to the chase, Martin Luther had had a gutful. And in response to Tetzel, Martin nailed a long list of complaints and ideas, his 95 theses, to the door of All Saints Church on All Saints Eve, October 31st, 1517. And he mailed them to his boss, Albert of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Mainz. Now, by nailing this document to the door of his local church, Martin thought that he was doing what perhaps Dr. Sheldon Cooper would do when he posted a physics paper to an internet physics forum. You get a whole bunch of academics discussing whether politely, whether or not so politely, whether it was right or not. That's, that's what he thought he was buying into, an academic discussion with other academics. But that's not actually what really happened. What really happened is that these 95 theses went seriously viral. Um, Someone took them off the church door and took them to a publisher who printed out thousands of copies. Why, why, Why did it go viral? Well, perhaps one simple reason was that the printing press, a new form of social media, it's, it's been invented less than a hundred years earlier, and it was the internet of Martin's day. And it needed stuff to print. People bought pamphlets, and they were hungry for tracts. A tract was cutting-edge news telling you what was going on and brand new ideas. So you needed stuff to print, and the printing press was this really hip way of finding out what was going on. As as you went down the road on your horse, you'd see teenage girls at the bus stop reading their tracks. (laughs) It was so cool. A second reason was that your average German was very interested in the economic implications of Martin's ideas. 
Martin's theses attacked the flow of money out of Germany over the Alps into Italy for the sake of building a new cathedral, a sore point felt by many Germans. Martin Luther wrote, quote, The revenues of all Christendom are being sucked into this insatiable basilica. The Germans laugh at calling this the common treasure of Christendom. Before long, all the churches, places, walls and bridges of Rome will be built out of our money. First of all, we should rear living temples. By which he meant, first of all, we should disciple Christians. That's a better place to start. First of all, we should rear living temples. Next, local churches. And only last of all, St. Peter's, which is not necessary for us. We Germans cannot attend St. Peter's. Better that it should never be built than that our parochial churches be despoiled. The Pope would do better to appoint one good pastor to a church than to confer indulgences upon them all. Why doesn't the Pope build the Basilica of St. Peter out of his own money? He is richer than Croesus. Croesus being a mythical figure of wealth in the ancient world. The Pope would do better to sell St. Peter's and give the money to poor folk who are being fleeced by the hawkers of indulgences. If the Pope knew the exactions of these vendors, he would rather than St. Peter's lie in ashes than it should be built out of the blood and hide of his sheep. And of course, you know, if you know your Bible, you begin to think Ezekiel 34, false shepherds fleecing God's flock. And that's probably why Martin's 95 Theses went viral so quickly. It hit a chord. Ja, ja, mein Vater. Das ist Gustav, ja? <laughs> a third reason um, is that Martin was concerned about indulgences and his concerns rang true. He wrote, quote, Indulgences are positively harmful to the recipient because they impede salvation by diverting charity and introducing a false sense of security. Christians should be taught that he who gives to the poor is better than he who receives a pardon. He who spends his money for indulgences instead of relieving want does not, uh, receives not the indulgence of the Pope but the indignation of God. Unquote. Give your money to the poor, not the church, in other words. Amen, brother. Preach it. And fourthly, A reason as to why Martin's theses went viral is that he criticized the Pope, and you weren't allowed to do that. And he criticized the elaborate but non-biblical theological paraphernalia that underpinned the whole damned business. As a conclusion to his theological argument, Martin wrote, Therefore I claim the Pope has no jurisdiction over purgatory. Um, We notice at this point in time that Martin actually still believes in purgatory. At this point in time, he still believes in purgatory, but he has criticized the Pope. I am willing to reverse this judgment if the church so pronounces. If the Pope does have the power to release anyone from purgatory, why in the name of love does he not abolish purgatory by letting everybody out? 
If for the sake of miserable money he released uncounted souls, why should he not for the sake of most holy love empty the place? Yeah. (laughs) Martin Luther's criticism of papal teaching was in his time by no means unique. His questioning of papal authority was not unusual. But what was usual was that you got burnt at the stake as a heretic for doing that. Um, He would be lucky to survive this. Martin lived in a time when people in power, kings, queens, princes, popes, bishops, cardinals, they all expected to be obeyed and they could tell you what to think just as much as they could tell you what to do. To tell the Pope he was wrong, that was a challenge that would make it to Rome in no time flat, and it did. Within days, the Pope knew about this. But we should note the form of Martin's challenge. Martin didn't say, hey, Pope Leo, you're wrong. What he said was, hey, Pope Leo, the Bible says you're wrong. And that set the scene for the Protestant Reformation. The key question, which actually we'll come back to next week, who is the final authority when it comes to matters of faith and doctrine? Is it the church or is it the Bible? Another way of saying that is, who ultimately do we believe? The Pope or the Word of God, the Bible? That is the key question. Having said that we'll focus on that key question next week, I'd like to draw today's talk to a conclusion. Not by by thinking so much about authority, but rather about thinking about the relationship between money and the church. That's Luther's third point. Indulgences get this relationship wrong, don't they? But it's so easy to get that relationship wrong. The relationship between church and money. For at its heart, the notion of the indulgence is the notion that spiritual well-being will flow on from giving money to the church. And I, for one, firmly believe that spiritual well-being will flow on from giving money to the church. So it's easy to get confused, isn't it? It's easy for us to pour scorn on the Roman Catholic notion of indulgence. It's very easy, but if we're not careful, we will find ourselves making similar errors. The relationship between money and spiritual welfare is complex. For example, as, um, as we read the gospel reading this morning, we may well have thought that Jesus, having seen the widow put into the temple treasury all she had to live on, we might have expected Jesus to say, Hey! It is for the temple to look after this poor widow, not for this poor widow to have to look after the temple. And we might have expected him to say that because he's only just finished denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees who, amongst other things, devour widows' houses. If Jesus had said that, he would have said it's similar to lots of other things he said and he would have been in line with the law of Moses. Because Moses told people to set aside a tithe, the first and the best, one-tenth of all their produce. According to Deuteronomy chapter 26, they were to give this tithe, quote, to the Levite, which means to the priesthood, to, to the temple, to the church in other words, but also to the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. 
so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. That threefold formula, the alien, the widow, and the orphan, is an umbrella term for everybody vulnerable in society. God's people were to do this and be faithful in doing this in the expectation of a blessing. After having given the first and best to God in the form of a one-tenth tithe to the priests and to the poor, the Israelites were to pray, Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to your ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 26, verse 15. Proverbs chapter 3 sums up this relationship between tithing and blessing when it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Jesus affirmed tithing when he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they were correct to tithe the tenth of all they got. They just failed to correlate that tithing with what the tithing was to stand for, which is justice, mercy, and compassion. Jesus also affirms tithing indirectly in his words concerning the poor widow. We're expecting him to say, hey, don't give your money to the temple. They need to look after you. But no, he commends her for her faith and devotion. The widow who put in all she had to live on offers the greater sacrifice in a situation where that is assumed to be a good thing, giving money to God, something which is to be esteemed. Um, in the early chapters of Acts, um, in, in, in the New Testament, after Jesus has gone back to heaven, we watch and we read and we heard about it this morning. We watch as the new Christians, they transfer their devotional giving from the temple to the apostles. And responsibility for providing for the poor and the needy is also transferred from the temple to the apostles. So that any money now given to the apostles supports both full-time Word of God ministry as well as practical help for the poor, including a food program for those unable to provide for themselves. And as we read through Paul's letters, as we continue into the New Testament, we encounter no specific commands to tithe, but many direct exhortations to be a generous people. All of us to be exceedingly generous. Perhaps, and to do so in the expectation of a blessing. What you do with your money and spiritual welfare are linked. Perhaps the most obvious example of this comes in the ninth chapter of Second Corinthians. There Paul says, hey, give and give a lot. Be careful. Be very generous in every situation, knowing that God will bless you mightily. Quote, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Chapter 9, verse 11. Well, all over the world today, there is a gospel message going out. It's different to the Christian gospel, but boy, is it popular. And it's preached in Christ's name, even though it's not Christ's gospel. And this gospel is sometimes referred to as prosperity gospel. 
Um, I, I remember having a number of conversations with uh, Simba, who, who you may remember. He was on staff here at church a few years ago, and he's from Zimbabwe. And I remember talking to him about the state of the church in Africa. And whilst on the one hand, uh, we rejoiced in the fact that in Africa, millions and millions of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, which is wonderful, Simba, yet nevertheless, on the other hand, was bitterly troubled by the fact that a huge percentage of those new converts were actually converted in response to prosperity gospel rather than the Christian gospel. Prosperity gospel comes in many different forms, but basically it says, Jesus overcame evil on the cross. You can overcome evil when you put your trust in Jesus. The evil you need to overcome is poverty and economic injustice. That's the tyranny of the devil which you experience every day. Trust Jesus and you'll soon be healthy, wealthy and wise. And actually, there's a whole heap of truth in that. The devil is in the details, but there's a lot in that that's true. But wait on. How, if, how, do you get, how do you get the blessing? Well, you get the blessing by giving. By being generous, obviously. The more generous you are, the bigger the blessing. And, and where should you give the money? Well, you should give the money to God's work. Amen? And you should give the money to those who are doing God's work. Amen? So, um, get out your checkbook, checkbooks right now because you can donate. Uh, and, and make your money orders out, please, to the Stephen Daly International World Evangelism Transformation Holy Spirit Prophetic Revival Crusade Fund. Amen? In other words, give me your money and you'll get blessed. Sound familiar? I'm John Tetzel all over again. A wolf in sheep's clothing, fleecing Christ's flock. And oh, by the way, just so you know, it's really important that I myself live a lifestyle of excessive and conspicuous consumption. Otherwise, that would be false advertising. You're not going to believe me unless, you know, I've got a really fantastic lifestyle. So even as we speak, parish council was giving approval to the building of a new helipad on the whole roof so that I can move around in style. Um, I obviously, I'm parodying the prosperity preacher just to make a point but I feel that actually this stuff is usually harder to spot than, than you and I might think and to one degree I think most of us uh, um, including me to one degree I think most of us including me have fallen for stuff like this uh, at, at some time or another it's actually quite hard to spot because it's hard to spot greed in your own heart Uh, Or at least I find it hard to spot greed in my own heart. So how do we keep this stuff about money and the church in balance? Well, in a sentence, trust Jesus to save you because money can't. And then use money so as to honor Jesus in all that you do. Trusting in Jesus to meet your every need. 
And if you need more detail than that, then what I'd say to you is read your Bible and keep reading your Bible. And if you're going to do that, then you need to know who should I believe, the Pope or the Bible? And that's the question we'll come back to next week. The Lord be with you.